Welcome to the Academic CME Podcast. As always, this program is a top quality accredited CE activity. If you would like to receive credit for this or any other Academic CME Podcast, please click the link in the description below or go to academiccme.com forward slash podcast. Greetings, everyone. Uh, my name is Dr. Sidney Brayman, and I'll be hosting uh, this meeting um, on behalf of Academic CME. Um, this is being presented through a very generous uh, grant uh, from INSMED. Um, today, the topic will be diagnostic strategies and long-term management of patients with non-tuberculin mycobacterial lung disease. Mycobacteria species, uh, other than Mycobacterium tuberculosis or uh, Mycobacterium leprosy or leprae, constitute the category of non-tuberculous Mycobacterium, also termed, you may have heard the term, atypical Mycobacteria. Sadly, these infections are increasing in this country and really worldwide. Uh, the exact cause is not totally known, but clearly improved diagnostic techniques uh, a host uh, uh, that is immunocompromised, and Doctor, uh, our speaker will tell us about that, and uh, the uh, increased life expectancy of, of people, I think, is another another reason because this is a disease of the elderly. Today we'll be uh, the first of five podcasts. The first entitled "Adapting Treatment Goals Based on Patient Needs." I am very pleased <clears throat> to present to you uh, our speaker today. Dr. Ann E. O'Donnell. She is professor of medicine at Georgetown University School of Medicine, and she is the Naomi Cohen Division Chief of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine and Sleep Medicine at Georgetown. Ann, welcome. Thank you, Sid, for the invitation. Uh, I'll be, thank you. I'll be uh, asking Ann a number of questions relating to uh, uh, these atypical <coughs> mycobacteria. And I think the first and what I think everyone would need to know is who's the typical patient? Who gets, gets the disease and how do they get it? Right. So, um, they, you know, patients are getting it. And as you noted, getting it with increased uh, frequency uh, because it is a, a bacteria or a class of bacteria that are in the water supply and in the soil. And so there's, you know, a great amount of exposure that we all have. But as you noted, it, it takes two to tango, so to speak, that you have to have the exposure and the patient has to have susceptibility uh, to get the infection. So which patients are susceptible? Um, clearly patients who have any kind of underlying lung disease. So um, fibrotic lung disease, old fibrocavitary disease, even uh, emphysema, COPD, old sarcoidosis, those patients are susceptible to this infection, um, as are a large number of patients who have bronchiectasis for various uh, reasons. And then there's another group of patients, which I think has become increasingly recognized, and these are the tall, thin, uh, older females uh, who have this certain body type uh, who seem to be uh, getting this disease without necessarily any pre-existing uh, lung, lung disease. Mm. So it's from the soil, and what does it do to people? Uh, this is a chronic respiratory disease, I understand. Uh, what are their symptoms, and can they give it to other people? Right. So it is from the, in the soil in the potable water supply as well. 
and the you know the symptoms are cough, sputum production, occasionally hemoptysis, um, sometimes chest pain, uh, shortness of breath. But also uh, many patients with this infection have systemic complaints like low-grade fever, or night sweats, and particularly weight loss uh, and fatigue. Of course, kind of nonspecific, but those are strongly characteristic of this infection. And um, patients, you know, show up with, with those symptoms. And often there's a long lag between the symptom onset and the time of diagnosis because the cultures have to be uh, obtained to prove this infection. Mm -hmm. So uh, these are obviously nonspecific symptoms you're describing, nonspecific complaints. Uh, what, would you, what would a doctor do to make this diagnosis? Yeah, so first I would say that um, they need the, the right symptoms and uh, imaging uh, of the lungs. And generally we're talking about a CT scan with uh, high resolution thin cuts to see what the, whether there's bronchiectasis or whether there's bronchiolitis, uh, so-called tree and bud infiltrates. Um, and then, but really to confirm the diagnosis, the cult, they, they need a respiratory culture. So. Generally, we're talking expectorated sputum, uh, sometimes induced sputum, and less commonly needing to do a bronchoscopy and obtaining the cultures that way. Mm -hmm. So uh, tuberculosis, I know we have to wait and wait uh, uh, for uh, cultures. I mean, what, what's the expectancy of when you get this back? And are there any other techniques that, where you can get the answer faster? Yeah, it's really um, one good thing over the past, I would say, five years is the labs have become much more facile in, in uh, getting these specimens turned around. So the way the lab processes these specimens, they do a smear, you know, occasionally you have a, so much bacterial load that the smear will be positive, but generally that's not the case. And then the, um, the specimen goes into culture and with the techniques that the lab does, if once the uh, culture starts to grow, they can apply molecular diagnostics to the specimen. And at least with Mycobacterium avium complex, um, there's a molecular probe that it identifies it fairly quickly. But usually we're talking two to four weeks for the identification of MAC and quicker if, if there's a rapid grower uh, like Mycobacterium abscessus. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is a bacterial disease, but the approach isn't exactly like many pyogenic bacteria. Uh, it's a chronic disease, chronic symptoms, and hence, I guess you uh, have some time to make the proper diagnosis before treatment. Right. Generally, the patients are not acutely ill with this. That it's a more slow, uh, progressive process, um, and again, often you know it takes time for the diagnosis to be thought of and then confirmed. So you're you're right. It, it's not an emergency. Uh, situation with this type of bacteria. Mm -hmm. So the patient's symptomatic and uh, you do all the right tests and sure enough, the diagnosis is made. What comes next? I mean, does all patients have to be treated? Uh, uh, what is the treatment? Uh, and uh, what, how do you advise patients uh, uh, at this point? Right, great questions. Cause it, you know, it's a complex set of treatment um, modalities that we usually apply to patients. So first off, you know, we wanna make sure they actually have active disease. So according to the 2020 guidelines that were uh, published by uh, the ATS and the IDSA and two European societies, 
you really only have active disease if you have two positive cultures mm -hmm. or one bronchoscopic culture. So you want to have that confirmatory second culture uh, if you're doing expectorated sputum. And then, you know, it's really a sort of collaborative decision making with the patient and sort of assessing the how rapidly this disease is evolving. You know, again, many times the patient have, will have had CTs and things like that. You can look back and see what the progression has been because some patients do um, progress, usually have more CT findings, you know, multiple positive cultures, but other patients, it's kind of a static process and they actually don't progress. Do we have a good way to determine that? Not really, but, um, you know, other than keeping the patient under our close observation. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had patients where uh, I didn't expect the disease, showed up in the sputum. Uh, so I think what you're saying is you don't always have to treat this. And, and if that happens, does it ever go away by itself? Right. Yeah, you know, sometimes it is transient, um, you know, ironically, because it's in the water supply, right? If the patient drank a glass of water before they <laughs> gave you their specimen, it, it, it can be because of that. But in general, um, it, it doesn't go away. Um, but again, uh, if you look at the guidelines, the, the guidelines clearly say not every patient needs to be treated with antibiotics. You have to be judicious and deciding who really needs the antibiotics. So the way I see it is you, you do treat all patients, but not everybody needs antibiotics. Mm -hmm. and, and I sort of take a stepwise approach um, First, just educating the patient about the disease. I think it's very complicated for patients to understand, you know, why isn't this like a pneumonia? You know, I take antibiotic for a week and it goes away. And then we sort of ramp up the treatments. And I think the other really important uh, take home message on this is there are patients that don't need antibiotics, but you need to follow them. Um, they, you, you have to make sure the patient understands that at least, you know, it, even with or without antibiotics, you're gonna to have to become the patient's friend for life kind of thing um, mm. to make sure it doesn't change. So this can actually be something that's dormant and then all of a sudden explodes uh, at a later later point. Mm. It can be, yes, yeah. yeah. Is, is there anything that might cause this to happen? I mean, uh, we, we had mentioned immunosuppression before and um, who else is like in that vulnerable state? Yeah, so patients, you're right. I mean, if, if your patient who has low-grade infection, hasn't required antibiotics, all of a sudden needs chemotherapy for a malignancy, or if they develop an autoimmune disease and they need a, a, a biologic therapy, say for rheumatoid arthritis or for inflammatory bowel disease, those type of um, immune suppressing agents can definitely set this infection off mm -hmm. and make it more virulent. So it is important to keep that in mind. I mean, in general, these patients are not, as best we know, immunocompromised, but definitely those type of agents can um, make the disease go very active. Really? So, okay, uh, a physician has uh, a suspicion. He has the right radiographic uh, findings. He then suspects the disease, gets the positive culture, as you said, uh, twice in the sputum, uh, maybe once by bronchoscopy, there is not enough sputum. Uh, what happens next? You begin treatment. How do you follow these people? Do you wait for the sputum to convert to, to, to node germs? Uh, 
uh, right. what happens so, with the x-ray and so forth. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, you know, generally, again, educating the patient and kind of a shared decision making about the, the next steps. I generally start patients on an airway clearance regimen first. Um, occasionally, patients will really um, not necessarily convert their sputum culture, but will get radiographic improvement just with airway clearance. But then if they have persistent changes, symptoms, positive cultures, you know, I'm going to think about the antibiotic regimen. And um, I think the 2020 guidelines are very helpful in laying out what the regimens are for the specific types of mycobacterium. And um, if the patient has mycobacterium avium complex, um, many of those patients can be treated with a thrice weekly uh, three-drug regimen. Uh, if they have uh, mycobacterium abscessus, it's a different, more complex regimen. But um, if you, you know, the antibiotics, um, again, we're talking generally three oral antibiotics for mycobacterium avium. And I generally, if I'm going to start those, introduce them one at a time to assess for side effects from each individual component. And if the patient has nodular um, bronchiectasis, it's three times a week. If they actually have cavitary disease on their CT, then it's daily antibiotics. Oh, you just mentioned, uh, I, I guess, sort of two categories of the disease. This uh, is more nodular and then the, uh, the more serious uh, cavitary disease. Could you give us some sense of how successful are you in the first group uh, in treatment and how successful in the second? And what, what is success? Right. <laughs> so I always say, tell patients like, changing your sputum to negative is not necessarily success. It's got to be you feel better, you, your imaging is better, the, the whole package is better, not just the culture conversion. But right now, according to the guidelines, you, you need to treat patients for 12 months of antibiotics after their sputum converts to negative. So that is considered the standard um, treatment. Um, if, um, you know, there are, what's our success? Um, it's about 80% of patients with MAC uh, disease actually convert to negative while they're on therapy. But unfortunately, about 50% are again positive a year or two later. Um, and our outcomes with the other microbiome are less robust. Mm. And there's a debate, Sid, about whether um, when patients recur with their, or ha again, have positive cultures, is that actually a relapse of the original infection or is it a reinfection with a different, a genotypically different strain of the mycobacterium? Wow, this has been great. And I really appreciate this. Uh, our time is almost up, but I, I think there's one other question that people would, maybe an obvious question to, uh, to a doctor's office. Can you cut this out? Can you just get rid of it with surgery like a, like a malignancy you can? Right, so we do sometimes recommend surgery, um, generally for localized disease. So if the patient or you know has it in one lobe or you know one segment, or if they have diffuse disease but one area is the most involved, we will consider surgical resection for that. They always need antibiotics though before and after the surgery to to you know make the healing as as uh, good as possible. Super. Well, this has been wonderful. I appreciate it. Uh, any other comments I could entertain? Uh, if not, I think that we'll probably end this uh, first phase uh, of the five series podcast. Uh, thank you so much for your, your help today. 
Great. Thank you. Yeah.